Well, happy spring break. How are y'all doing? Good. Awesome. Great. I took last week off, and uh, so I got two hours worth of stuff to pack in. So hopefully you're ready. And uh, just kidding. We won't go two hours. We'll see. But uh, we continue our series, Godfidence. And uh, we're in Philippians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 18 this morning. I just want to remind you that in Philippians, Paul is in prison. So he's writing as a prisoner with that thought of he's in the scale of balance. He doesn't know if his life will end tomorrow or not. And so with his, the idea of his mortality is there before him. And he's thinking about this church in Philippi and wanting to give some encouragement and some words to them. And so he is instilling in them that their confidence should be even more than it is in the person of Paul. Their confidence should be in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is telling them, I want you to have confidence, not in just me, but I want you to have confidence in God. That as I'm in this balance of I don't know if I'll ever get to see you again or whatever, and we've had a great relationship, and you've imitated me, and you've learned from me, and that's great. However, my desire for you is that you would lean into Jesus and press into him and have confidence in him more than anything else. And so here the church at Philippi, chapter 2, verses 12 and 18, Paul's reminding them of that, this idea of, of Godfidence and of leaning into God. And, and um, so this morning, as you open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, or you have version or whatever you're going to be using, uh, we'll be looking at it. And I read from the New Living Translation, if that means anything to you. All right. And so here we go in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 18. It says this, Dear friends, you always followed my instructions. Now, this idea of follow my instructions is the word obey, okay? And so you obey. And one of the things about obey is a word that we don't really like for some reason. Every time that I get ready to do weddings, one of the words that always comes up is, Pastor, can we take out that word obey and submit? And so we have a little discussion about what that means. And this idea of obey and submit is actually means to outserve one another. That we are so in love with one another, we've established a covenant as a man and a woman before God. We are in pursuit of him, and in pursuit of him, what it means, therefore, is to submit one to another and obey one another, and it's this idea of trying to outserve one another. That 100% the husband, 100% the wife, we are pursuing serving the other's needs, and we kind of lay down our needs and our agenda because we're pursuing God the Father and pursuing God the Father, our best action is to love our spouse well like Jesus loves us. And so that's the idea. And so here Paul is taking this idea of obey, and he's saying, listen, as you've obeyed me, because Paul, while he was with them, was their teacher. He was their master rabbi. And as their master rabbi, he was teaching them. And he said, so while I was with you, you were obeying me. But he's also saying you're also obeying the commands that God the Father has given us, that Jesus has given us, because as I have told you in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me, Paul, as I imitate Christ. And so every time that you've imitated and you've followed through on the instructions that I've given you to obey, not only have you obeyed me, but you've obeyed Jesus. And so now Paul is saying, listen, as I'm in prison and this is kind of, this may be the end of my life or not, I want to remind you that now that when those moments when I was with you, you obeyed me and imitated me and imitated Christ. Now that I'm not with you, this is when the rubber meets the road and you begin to take responsibility and ownership of your own faith. Now, one of the things that I consistently told parents and worked with students as a student pastor for a while is there becomes a moment in everyone's life and everyone's spiritual journey where you have to decide who is Jesus for me. That you have to have this moment of if you've been raised up, especially in a, a Christian home or a home that's influenced by 
Christianity, that your parents are bringing you to church, you're taking you to youth group, you've been in VBS, and you've had all these different things. And so all these stories and all these truths and these doctrines are there, but at some point as a teenager, as a young adult, something happens in your life and you ask the question, because of the realities of life, does this Jesus really matter? And does it, for lack of a better term, does he work in my life? And so that somewhere along the way, as teenagers, there's a traumatic event. It could be a loss of a boyfriend, or it could be that they didn't make the team, or whatever it may be. There's a traumatic moment, and if they're being influenced in their faith, in their life, by their parents or others, that traumatic event makes them begin to ask the question, Is who is Jesus to me? And so many times as parents, we struggle with that, but in reality, this is the best place for them to have those discussions and to have those struggles. Because if your student or your young person or young adult is still influenced by you a little bit, you are a safety net to them, and they can come to you and bounce ideas off of you and say, hey, so in this situation in your life, what, what would Jesus do? What would you do in this situation? And if our lives are truly influenced by our faith, then it will have an impact on our children because reality is, as parents, the moment that as Christians that we have children, our heartbeat should be to our children, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. And so what does that look like for us to obey that the teacher has left the room, life is struggling, we want our children, our young adults, to obey even though mommy and daddy aren't there because their faith is making a difference in their life. And they're seeing us and they're imitating us in the stuff of life. They begin to imitate us because they see that Jesus has made a difference in our life, not just on Sundays at church, but in our homes, Monday through Friday and Saturday and all that stuff. Jesus is making a difference. And so they press into Jesus because they know no other way than to press into Jesus. And so Paul is saying that to the church at Philippi. Dear children, obey. Dear friends, obey. Press into Jesus just as you've been pressing into Jesus while I'm with you. Continue to imitate me, but now I'm not there to be checking up on you. How many of you have ever had a substitute teacher come to your classroom? Yeah, what happens? Is there a difference between the regular teacher and the substitute teacher? Why? Because they know not to mess around with the real teacher. Okay? This is kind of the same idea that Paul is giving us. Listen, the master teacher has left. You think I'm the master teacher, Paul, but actually Jesus is the master teacher. Press in. This is where you truly begin to learn. This is where you truly begin to own your faith. Obedience is a a fruit of pressing into your faith. Now, one of the things, again, that we struggle with is obedience, this idea of submission, this idea of trusting, and we struggle with trusting. 99.99999% of our life and our issues in life, the reason that we're struggling with them is because we haven't trusted that God is big enough to handle your situation. And so therefore, we don't obey. So if you're having struggles with your finances and you're not giving, I can tell you one of the things that's scripturally true time and time again, if you're struggling with your finances and you're not giving, it's because you do not trust that God is big enough to handle your budget. When in reality, Scripture teaches, man, if you dig into your budget and you begin to give, God does something magical with that 90% or whatever. God begins to do. And so if you're struggling with your relationships and you haven't dug into the Scripture truth about what that does and how you honor one another and all the different things we're talking about, then that will change how you do. So the things that you're addicted to, the things that you're struggling with, the reason that you continue to struggle with them is because you haven't leaned into and trusted that God will take care of those situations. 
And it's upside down living here that Paul is talking about. That the world tells you to live this way, the scripture tells us to live completely opposite. And so when we think of obey, we think of we're submitting and we're relinquishing our rights. And in some right, in some ways we are. But what we're doing in those moments of submitting and obeying to God the Father, submitting to Jesus, is we're relinquishing our rights, which are the things that are tying us down, and we're submitting ourselves to God the Father in the way that we obey Him and submit to Him and relinquish to Him actually brings freedom to our life, because now we have the understanding of, you know what, there's some cool things out there, but not everything is for me, because my heartbeat is about bringing pleasure to the Father. Because Jesus said, I am about my father's business, and if we're imitating Jesus, then we're about the father's business, not always about Chris's agenda. And so Paul is changing things up and wants us to grasp this. His mortality is in the balance. He says, listen, I know that you've obeyed me while I've been around, but now that I'm away, it's even more important that you lean into your faith and make it your own. And that's the challenge for us, is that I know some of you, continue to struggle with things, as Paul even talks about in some other passages, with the milk of the faith that you're still drinking the baby things when you should be dining on the meat. You should be getting a T-bone, a 40-ounce T-bone, and digging in. That's a lot of meat. But digging in. But sometimes you think that you you need, you get this injection from Pastor Chris or whoever or whatever, and I'm telling you that what you need to begin to do is understand is this is good stuff, but then you can on your own begin to dig in and that God has some great things he wants to show you and teach you and grow you in even besides Sunday morning. And you will grow deep and the results will be awesome. Because if you go to the gym once a week, you look like me. You have a few muscles, but it also looks like you like to eat food, right? Let's go. Let's be honest. Okay? Amen. All right? If you go to the gym every single day and you watch what you eat and you're disciplined with your life, the results show. For many of us, we nibble. And every once in a while, we do some stuff. However, we don't have the discipline. We're not taking the discipline to do the things that we need to do to truly see transformation come in our life and find freedom in our life like a really want and need. Paul says, dear friends, you have always followed my instructions, obeyed them when I was with you. And now that I'm away, it is even more important. Work hard. This idea of work hard is to bring to full completion, to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. So some of your translations will say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now this work out is uh, it's an interesting thing. Again, it's this idea of submitting. It's an idea of relinquishing. It's an idea of giving up where we naturally think of working. We think, hey, let's go get sweaty. Let's work hard. When in reality, the hard work for us, Paul is telling us, is that we relinquish our rights, that we come to the place where we're at the end of ourselves, the end of our smarts, the end of our strengths, the end of our wisdom, all the things that we have tried no longer work. So therefore, we give the work over to God, who's the only one that can actually do the work of transforming our heart, our mind, and our soul, and our appetites anyway. So the hard work is actually relinquishing the things that we think give worth and value to our life that actually give us, tie us down, and don't bring freedom. So here Paul is telling us, work out, let that come to completion, continually let that stuff work on you, bring your completion to salvation. And again, salvation is not of us. We didn't do it. We're not even a part of it. The only thing that we have is we say yes. We receive it. 
And so in the same way that the work of salvation is to receive it and to apply it, that's what the work is. We're continually receiving and saying that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient for my mess. Now, the struggle for us is, again, we struggle with trusting that what Jesus, the work that he did on a cross, is sufficient to cover over my stuff. Because we think, yeah, you know, God, I got this, I got this. And so we think, I'll keep this here. I'll bring the stuff that's kind of clean and kind of good to God and bring it as an offering. And he can work on that. But the stuff that I really struggle with, the stuff that really ties me down, the stuff that's really addicting, I don't want other people to see that, much less God. And so we try to kind of balance this clean life while we're being held back all this other stuff. So you look like a fool because you're walking around and this part's clean, but back behind you, you've got this smell and this stench and literally you're dragging a U-Haul of crap behind you. And you're thinking, hey, look, I'm doing this. And God's saying, listen, I want to remove everything. I want to get rid of the U-Haul that you're dragging around, but you don't trust me enough to unhitch it so that you can live in freedom. And how do we do that? We get to the end of ourselves. Or somewhere along the way, we begin to understand that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient for us. That salvation comes from him. Salvation continues in him. Salvation is finalized in him. He makes salvation complete. There's these three beautiful words that Paul gives us. That in that moment that we say yes to Jesus, we are justified. It is just as if I'd never sinned. That in that moment that we say yes, that Jesus steps in our place in the courtroom of God, and when the guilty verdict is down, it goes on Jesus and not us. We are justified in that moment. Jesus is declared guilty for us. And so in that moment that we say yes, that's that magical moment that in that moment we receive Christ, and the Spirit of God takes residence with inside of us. And so now we're beginning to work out our salvation. We're beginning to hear from God. We have this new relationship and we're working it out and understanding and trusting that God is God and that he can handle the things. And if we'll just let some of those things go that we've been holding on to, he's trustworthy enough to to bring completion to them and to free us up. It's not only justified, but he's also sanctifying us. He's working out those things. He's making us whole. He's making us clean. He's making us innocent. He's bringing us to new eyes and to new appetites. And finally, there's this yes now, but also this future sense to your salvation. That as God sees us, he sees us in light of what Jesus did, so we're made right. But he also sees us in that moment of glorification when we are with God the Father and with Jesus in heaven and experiencing that. So he sees us in that completed sense of our salvation is complete and working that out in us. So work hard at being a part of the completion of your salvation, and so that this is that working it out with fear and trembling. And it's not a fear and trembling that we think about where we're like, oh, I'm scared. It's a fear and trembling of I've experienced the grace of God. I've experienced the holiness of him. I've experienced who he is. Some of the the things about God is the characters of him. I've been in his presence, and so now I have a better understanding of who God is and who I am not. And when we understand who God is and who I am not, this fear and trembling literally means, again, I can trust and I can submit and I can relinquish and understand. I can get to the end of myself because myself is never sufficient, but Jesus is always sufficient. And so I can relinquish. God empowers us. The next part of that is, for God is working in you, giving you the desire 
and the power to do what pleases him. So here the first part is, is that we should work hard at obedience. And that this working hard at obedience, there's some things that, that God does. And so the cool thing about this is if we surrender, as this passage here tells us, is we surrender, then God is already doing the work in us. But also it's this word power and this word um, desire are words that literally that God gives us the desire, gives us the appetite, and he also gives us the power, that word energy. How many of y'all know the word energy? A couple of y'all. Remember snowpocalypse when you didn't have it? Okay. So here Paul is telling us God not only gives us the desires, the appetites for the things of God, he actually gives us the energy, the power, the strength, the motivation, the will to accomplish his desire, to do the things that pleases him. So here's the interesting piece of it. If we surrender our rights and our appetites and begin to pursue Jesus like Paul says, then God in his wisdom gives us the energy and actually gives us the appetite to do the things that pleases God. So when we do the things that pleases God, it actually brings pleasure to us. Why? Because in those moments, we are imitating Jesus. And what was Jesus all about? Jesus was all about my father's business. And so his heartbeat was, I want to do whatever I can possibly do for the father's business to bring God the father glory. And so we are most like him when we surrender our rights, our privileges, our desires, and follow the desires that now God has given us, an appetite and eyes for those things that bring pleasure to God because now they are our pleasures and our desires. And so it's not about our glory, but it's about his glory. So therefore, our heartbeat is transformed, our mind is transformed, our eyes are transformed. And it's not even us doing the work. It's us submitting so that God can do the work in us. Matter of fact, in Romans, even Paul talks about it. And he says, listen, I have my own desires that I want to be to serve God and to crave the things of God. But whenever I do, I struggle and I fall. And so there's this struggle that Paul has. And Paul tells us, he says, you, we cannot in our own strength do the things that God wants us to do until we let God work in our heart and transform our soul. We cannot do the things of God in our own power, in our own strength, in our own wisdom. Only when we submit and relinquish can God do what he wants to do. This is upside down thinking for us because we are work hard, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do this, do that. And God says the hard work is actually relinquishing and saying I'm at the end of myself. God empowers us to do and to will. And one of the things that we as humans struggle with, and if you think about all the other religions in the world, all the other religions in the world teach you here's the things that you do and don't do so that you can earn the favor of God. Christianity is the only religion in the world that says we cannot earn the favor of God. Salvation comes from God and God alone. It is a free gift. And that is what is radically different because all the other religions make us bow down and cower in fear and trembling out of guilt and out of a system of scales and balances that if you can do so much good, if you do more good than you do bad, then you will enter into heaven. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father is through me and what I have done upon the cross. And so in that moment that you say yes to him, the scales of your work are balanced because it's not your works, it's the work of Jesus. And so what Jesus did on the cross, the work of his death and life and resurrection is the one thing that balances the scales in such a way that when he stands in our place, we have the ability to have life with God the Father. 
in that moment. God empowers us. And so our life is about trusting in the sufficiency of the cross and allowing the Spirit of God to transform us from the inside out and to have new appetites and new eyesight and a different way to treat people. Why? Because it's not about my glory. It's about His glory. And so in that moment when we kind of begin to work in His power, it changes our relationships. And so here Paul talks about that. He says, hey, listen, in the church, people are watching how you do relationships. How you love each other is important because the outside world wants what you say you've got, and they're watching to see what it's actually doing. And the first place they see it is in the church. And sometimes the worst place to watch people love each other (laughs) is in the church. Yeah, you've been there. Yeah, some of you have lived there. All right. And so this deal of digging into our deal. And so Paul tells us that the way to have better relationships is to do everything without complaining and grumbling. No church ever has complaining or grumbling. No one's ever worried about the color of the carpet or what the pastor wears or doesn't wear or any of those things, right? The pastor's hair color, that kind of stuff. And so here Paul tells us if, listen... If you have been transformed and are being transformed, the first thing that we'll see the results is church at Philippi. People are watching you. I'm gone. Now they're watching. Is how do you love each other? Is it without grumbling, without complaining? And Paul is drawing a clear distinction. He's drawing a clear illustration for those people of thinking back to the Israelites. That they spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering around. And guess what they did the entire time they were in the wilderness? You burned the toast. You didn't even cook it right. You didn't get it. I mean, they're just going at it for 40 years. For 40 years. And Paul is saying, listen, do not be like the Israelites. Do not just be chattering. Be grumbling and complaining. That we are to be different people. That when people look at us and the way that we treat each other, that we begin to see someone and we say, listen, God has amazed me by the grace that he's offered me. That he sees me and he says, listen, Chris is a mess. And he's offered grace and his long suffering with me, his patience with me is, is literally this, this picture of a dynamite that this fuse is so long that he should be able to just wipe me out. But his patience with my stupidity and the dumb things that I do and the things that I say and the way that I treat people is long suffering. And that the way that he does that, we should imitate him and have long suffering with other people and offer grace and, and offer opportunities. And it, it's messy. So there is no perfect church. If there's a perfect church, no one attends it. Because none of us are perfect. The first time that a church door is open and somebody walks in, it is messed up. Because we are messed up people. And the more people that are there, the messier it gets. And so Paul says the world is watching how you messed up, screwed up people begin to love and care for one another and do things for one another without complaining, without grumbling, with bad bad intentions because you are shoulder to shoulder together and the moving in the direction of serving other people for the purpose of Jesus Christ and Christ alone and for his glory, not our glory. Because let's be honest. I know that sometimes people choose churches because it fits their needs. I get it. I understand. I have kids. I have teenagers. I understand. So you're looking for those different things. But then sometimes things happen. You move here and there and all those different things. And, and I get it. However, as a body of believers, if we're truly pursuing 
what it means to be followers of Jesus and to submit and to work. As we gather together as a body here at Crosspoint, we are shoulder to shoulder moving together to point people to Jesus. And if that's our agenda, if that's our purpose, if that's our mission, if that's what we're about, there's going to be something about the person next to you that you're like, I do not like something about them, but it doesn't matter because it's about Jesus. We'll worry about that when the time has come and the time is not yet. The time right now is to focus on we've got work to do for Jesus because the dash of our life is extremely short. And if we get caught up in murmuring and complaining, you're going to wake up one day and you're going to have regrets over, I did not accomplish all the things. I was not doing all the things that God had for me because I was worried about the color of the carpet or too many lights or smoke or whatever it may be that's your concern. It's about us pushing people, talking about, moving people, showing the mirror of our hearts and our lives toward Jesus. That's one of the reasons we even changed the name here. Because we're about... The cross. The cross is the point. And it is easy for us to get caught up in the little different things that we do and don't like when we're not focused in on that we're about Jesus. The relationships in the church should be that people will be like, man, I don't like so-and-so, so there's that time happens. But I'm going to love them anyway. The next part that Paul talks about, not only will this working hard give us better relationships in the church, but also outside of the church. People are watching us and looking at us and how we care for other people. And So what does it look like? And Paul says that we should shine brightly as lights within the community amidst darkness. And so that when we leave this place, we should be energized by the Spirit of God. We should be literally, in some ways, kind of glowed up, okay, because we've been encouraged by one another, we're we kind of got in this moment together, and now we're out in the community, and we're serving, we're loving, and there's something different about us. And what is it? That the Spirit of God has taken residence with inside of us, and we are transformed. That we have new eyes, we have a new heart, we have a new agenda, a new purpose, and our life is not about our agenda and our glory, but about His glory. And I'm about His business. And so I will give up some of my stuff for someone else so that they maybe have an opportunity to be pointed to Jesus that they would be able to imitate me and see Jesus in me. Why? Because it matters for people. Even Paul, at the end of that verse, he says that so that you can be amongst crooked and perverse people. And that crooked and perverse people, he's actually drawing them back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, where Moses reminds the people that they are a messed up people, that they are crooked and perverse. And so people are able to look at us and see, man, y'all are messy but I see that Jesus has done something in you. And as I see something that's done in you, I want what you've got. Now, the interesting thing is in that moment, whenever God created Adam and Eve, he breathed his breath, his ruach into Adam. And Adam, in that moment, had a relationship with God the Father. And that relationship that Adam and Eve had in the garden was broken because of sin. And so from that moment of brokenness, all of us from humanity have been desiring to have that relationship restored with God the Father, that he, his breath would fill us and give us purpose and meaning and a peace. And so all of humanity from that time has pursued things to fill that void. And until that void is filled, we're constantly seeking all kinds of things. And the only thing that is sufficient to fill that void is Jesus himself. 
And so in that moment that you say yes to Jesus, it fulfills you and the breath of God refreshes you and there's peace in your soul. There's something different about you and you know that you know that you know that you've encountered God. And so Paul tells us, listen, in that moment, as we begin to live out, people will begin to see in you and they will see an innocence, a cleanliness in you. There'll be something different about you because you now have an appetite and a desire and a will that's different than before. And that the world is watching us. I think this is one of the things that our culture is struggling with, is our culture. You can just watch a few, a little bit of TV, a little bit of news or whatever, on social media, and you can quickly tell that most of the things that our world is pursuing and our culture is pursuing is what? Purpose and meaning, worth and value. They want to feel loved. And all of that is satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. If we're worried about our culture, if we're worried about our teenagers, if we're worried about whatever it is that we're worried about in America, if we would begin to think about, it's not about this or it's not about this, it's this, that they do not know the Jesus that you know. And that if we begin to pray for and begin to weep over our community and over our nation and over the world because they are searching for something that we know will never bring joy, will never bring completeness, will never bring what you have in Jesus, if we begin to pray that way, we will begin to look at the world differently. Instead of things to complain about, we'll think about the opportunities to begin to, to meet people where they're at and say, I know that you're struggling with this and I don't get it because I don't get it, but I love you enough that I'm willing to step into your messiness because God stepped into my messiness or someone else stepped into my messiness on behalf of God and I want to step into your messiness with you and so that you can understand and know who Jesus is. And that's what Paul is saying. Is that if we're about his agenda, for about his work and his will, that all the other things that we're concerned about and worried about begin to kind of fall by the wayside because we're pursuing the Father's business. Last thing is that a best life is a poured out life. That that last moment when you're there at the end, that the best life is a poured out life. That Paul uses the word, he literally says, like a, like a sacrifice. And in those days, before you ate and after you ate, they would pour out wine over the table. And they would make a prayer and say, this is my life poured out. God, thank you for a life poured out. Thank you for your generosity. And so Paul is saying that a life for us is a life poured out. That we thank God for what he's given us and we just pour and we pour and we pour to the end of ourselves. And that God continually energizes us, continually motivates us as we just pour out our life and say, God, my life is your life. It's not mine anymore. My life is an offering before you. Use me. As Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, My life is a living sacrifice. Every day I climb up on the altar and say, God, it's not about me, but it's about you. Let's pray together. Father, I just pray for us in this room this morning that we would just surrender that we would submit, that in that moment of submission that we would just obey and say we are tired of doing life in our own strength, in our own wisdom, tired of being tied down to a U-Haul and not being able to, to move and to do and to go with the freedom with which you say we should have. So, Father, this morning, maybe for the first time, we just trust you, that you are God and we are not. May we surrender. 
Father, maybe there's some areas of our life that we've been holding on to, that we've been trying to clean up on our own or, or even just hide and not even try to worry about anymore, that, Father, we would just relinquish those to you. We would do some spring cleaning and just put those boxes of stuff before you and just let them go to the dump and not worry about them, not even weep over them, because we don't need them. You are sufficient. So, Father, I just pray for us this morning that we would just relinquish those things and live a life that's poured out in obedience to you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.